Hello, and welcome to Strange Sound. This is Joe. Welcome to episode 29 of Strange Sound. My goodness, 29 episodes. Hmm, when did we start? I think it was... I keep saying we as if I've got a mouse in my pocket. I don't, and I'm not royalty either. So, why do I keep saying we? It's just me. I started this podcast, I believe, back in March of this year, around the time the uh, COVID crisis started, I do believe. And it's been nearly every week that I've posted an episode. Um, I've, I think I missed a couple uh, during that time when I was uh, hospitalized back in April, uh, briefly, and uh, I might have missed an episode or two. Uh, but yeah, uh, feeling great. Here I am feeling great in the era of COVID, which is quite an accomplishment given that we have now 200,000 deaths and God knows how many people permanently um, health impacted by this horrible crisis, this pandemic uh, that's been raging across our country in a way that uh, hasn't really been seen elsewhere in the world on the same scale. Sure, there are countries that have a major problem with this now. Certainly Brazil, um, India. Obviously, Italy had a huge problem with this. And China had their problem with it as well. It's just that here, it just doesn't seem to be... It's uncontrolled. And it's largely due, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, to the... Well, what was the stated goal of the Trump administration, the deconstruction, um, the dismantling of the administrative state? And that's exactly what they've accomplished. And it's, this, is, this is the result. This is what having a dismantled administrative state looks like. Uh, the other word for it is a failed state. We are effectively living in a failed state. <laughs> I mean, our response to a pandemic is completely disastrous in every which way, no consistency, no leadership from the top, um, very inadequate measures to keep people either safe or to encourage um, safe behavior. Um, in fact, signals in the opposite direction are much stronger. The president has been modeling the type of behavior that people have been following, uh, you know, particularly on his uh, campaign trail. If you look at some of his audiences and some of the groups that come to groups of people that come to hear him speak, um, most of them aren't wearing masks. Most of them are crowded in together. Even at their convention, they had people sitting cheek by jowl with uh, no masks on. Um, and I'm assuming that some of those people might have had COVID, some maybe not. Uh, I'm not really sure how they're how they're handling that. Um, I don't know what the 
fallout from that may have been, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, in any case, this is what the deconstructed administrative state looks like, and it's not pretty. So, <laughs> yeah, so 200,000 dead from COVID. So very many of them um, died in nursing homes, um, which is not surprising. Uh, nursing homes are places where people die quietly all the time. And as someone who's spent a good deal of time in nursing homes with various elderly relatives, um, I can truthfully say that despite the best efforts of some of the, some of the staff in these places who, who are ordinarily from my own personal experience, um, some very competent people working in nursing homes, um, but they're just overworked, understaffed, um, just overwhelmed with the amount of work that they have to do. I've seen entire wards full of, of patients and residents, um, maybe 40 residents to a hall and one aide working that entire um, wing of a given nursing home. Um, that's not all that unusual. People call in sick or don't show up or quit and they are in no hurry to replace them. I mean, this is a profitable business. This is a remunerative business. And the way they keep it, you know, paying is by not spending too much money, <laughs> not spending a lot of money on this, right? They're underpaying these people. They're underpaying the aides. Um, I don't know. I don't know whether the nurses get, you know, sort of a standard wage. Um, I imagine they, they're paid quite a bit better than the, than the aides, but, uh, there aren't that many of them. So you've got skilled staff, you've got unskilled staff, and there's there are people dying in those places every day, practically. Um, I think I mentioned this on the, on the podcast before. I think it was probably in an earlier episode I talked about how my mom was in a nursing home around the Utica area, um, Utica, New York, where I live. And she was there for about a year and a half, and during that time, you know, I saw plenty of people come and go, um, mostly leaving feet first. And yes, they're elderly and yes, they have health issues. Um, but I can, you can sort of see how it happens. I mean, people are parked there basically to die. And it's not, it's not like they're killing them, but they're not doing much to keep them alive, frankly. And they can't do much to keep them alive. The rooms are like poorly equipped hospital rooms. You know, there's oxygen. When people need oxygen, they get a tank. They bring a tank over. And uh, they, they wheel a tank around or they, they attach a tank to their wheelchair. My mother was riding around in kind of a crappy wheelchair. We would complain about it and they'd do something about it. But it was it had some... Uh, had some issues that it took a long time for them to straighten out. 
I, I won't go into too much detail about this because I think I've talked about this before, but I guess what I'm saying is given the number of COVID deaths that we've seen in America and the proportion of those deaths that came from nursing homes, it's not at all surprising that that's the case. Uh, people are, you know, sort of clinging to life in those places in a lot of cases. And when something like a virus works its way through the population of a nursing home, particularly the types of nursing homes that we have here in upstate New York, um, and the quality of care that they have at these nursing homes, it's it hits everybody. And if COVID is hitting everybody in a nursing home like the one that my mother was in, it's going to kill a lot of people. Now, I don't know whether or not they've had a problem in our area. We haven't had that many cases in the Utica area in upstate New York, um, a number of them. But uh, when someone dies in a nursing home, you know, and I, again, this isn't something I'm going to go into detail about because this is not really what I want to talk about this week. But, but just as long as I'm on this, you know, when someone dies in a nursing home, I'm not sure how much care is taken about specifically what the reason was. There's the expectation that someone who's in their 90s is probably going to pass away at some point. And how do they how do they deal with that? I don't really know. I mean, my mother had pneumonia. She ended up in the hospital. Um, they might not necessarily have taken her to the hospital unless we'd insisted on it. Um, in fact, they were a little incredulous because um, we had put in a do not resuscitate order for my mother early on because that had been her wish many years previous to that. That was like her standing order on that. And, uh, and when she had pneumonia one time, they were a little incredulous that we were asking to take her to the hospital. And, you know, I, I told them my understanding of a do not of a DNR, um, order on my mother meant that, you know, if she were at death's door, um, or if they, they found her, you know, not breathing, not to try to start her heart again or to start her breathing again, not to intervene dramatically to get her back to life if they came upon her and she was no longer living. That that was the point there. Not that if she has pneumonia that you not do anything about it. <laughs> no, that's not the same thing. <laughs> I mean, my mother would be coughing and, you know, having trouble breathing. And um, I think they were suggesting that she should just sort of choke to death. And obviously we weren't going to do that. So uh, on our insistence, we had her transported to the local hospital where, they, where she got good quality care, the same hospital that I went to in, in April. Um, and, and some of the same people who attended me attended her. Uh, some of the same nurses um, and nurses' aides. And uh, I can remember like one of the times that we had brought her, she she recovered. Um, and they they helped her. They they didn't do anything dramatic. You know, they didn't like put her on a ventilator, but they did have her, I think, on a CPAP machine at some point. Um, and were helping with her breathing. Um, but again... It was the kind of care that she needed to have at that moment. 
Um, there were plenty of people in that place that did not have family members that were keeping as close track of them as we were keeping close track of my mother, right? So if my mother was one of those people and she got pneumonia, they would have let her just lie there, um, maybe give her oxygen, maybe check on her once in a while, and then she would have died. And they would have wheeled her out of there and they would have said, well, you know, she she died. <laughs> and I'm not sure how they deal with that with the coroner or whatever. I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to say these people are like ghoulish murderers or anything, you know, far from it. But I'm just saying that's kind of the way it happens in nursing homes in much of the country. I don't know if this is how it happens in urban areas like uh, New York or Boston or L.A., um, Chicago. I, I don't I don't know. In a small town like this, these small nursing homes, you know, they... <laughs> This is how they deal with it. People die there all the time, right? So to my mind, it's like COVID must be just a disaster in these places. It, it, you know, because I don't know that they are really equipped to intervene in any real way or whether there is any expectation that they would intervene to stop someone from choking to death, Right to just just slowly choking to death in their in their semi private you know residential quarters which was you know in my mother's case which was like a a cheesy dorm room except less roomy that she shared with somebody else anyway didn't mean to go on a tear on that but that's it's just something i think of a lot um when i hear about these big abstract numbers like 200,000 people died from COVID, you know, how many of those stories are like the story of my mother who died, you know, probably a year and a half before COVID hit. Otherwise I would suspect that it was, that was what she had because it was never diagnosed. She just had pneumonia. (laughs) And uh, that's as specific as they get with these things, particularly with a 90 year old woman. Or a 91-year-old woman. Anyway, there we have it. So, what a week we've had, right? I have to say, uh, last night I was cutting up uh, antibiotic pills for my my cat. Um, cutting them up and stuffing them into capsules when I heard that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away. I heard her wafting in from the living room. My wife had the uh, news on and I could hear them talking about it and I was, you know, I kind of felt a lump in my throat, obviously. Not great news, right? Um, this is kind of like the uh, the other bookend of the um, the sort of bookshelf that was started in 2016 by Mitch McConnell and by the death of Antonin Scalia. So now we're looking at uh, Trump and McConnell, you know, identifying a candidate to replace Ginsburg and forcing that through as quickly as possible, trying to get that person confirmed in a matter of weeks um, as an election um, is in fact underway, really. Uh, early voting has started, I think, in Virginia um, and maybe elsewhere. 
Um, the election is only, as I speak, less than 50 days away from, from today. And, uh, it's, you know, they are going to attempt to do this thing. So I don't know really what to say about this, except that I think it's really time that people, you know, from the center to the left start taking seriously, um, the question of the courts with respect to electoral politics. And again, I'm talking about elections again, I realize, but (laughs) this, this is an issue (laughs) that should get everybody sort of standing up and uh, paying attention, right? We currently have a, a long-term conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Um, that's just baked into the cake now because Trump has had the opportunity to, to appoint two new justices. Um, the other conservative justices were appointed by, you know, Bush one and Bush two. And the oldest of them, Clarence Thomas, who is, who has been on the court longer than anybody right now. Um, shows no sign of um, being inclined towards retirement and doesn't appear to be falling over backwards. So I think he could be there for quite some time yet. He's not that old. Um, And, you know, we've just lost the justice who's considered to be um, probably on most issues the furthest left. Maybe not all issues, but most issues the furthest left of, of, the current court, um, certainly on the liberal side. Um, and now she's gone. Rest in peace. Um, she was an, an unusually gifted individual. Um, I am not going to engage in some kind of, um, praise fest. You can go to MSNBC and other outlets for that. Um, I'm not like a huge fan of the court and the members of the of the Supreme Court. I'm not like somebody who holds these people up on a pedestal. Um there are good justices and bad justices, right? Uh I my main issue with Ginsburg is that she didn't choose to retire in somewhere between 2012 and 2014 when she could easily have been replaced by someone progressive that was quite a bit younger and quite a bit healthier than her. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not holding this against her necessarily, but I think it would have been really wise and it would have been probably the best outcome for the issues that she spent her life working on. Um, you know, looking forward, that would have been the best way to ensure that whatever legacy she had worked on would be preserved and expanded upon and built upon in the future, uh, would be to have decided to step down in either 2012, 2013, or 2014, um, and allowed Obama to replace her 
while there was a Democratic Senate um, prior to January of 2015. And it seems like we could have done that. And it seems like Breyer could have done that as well. Um, and allowed a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate to install two younger justices who would maybe have a few decades in them um, to sort of refresh the side, if you will, even if it's in the minority, it would have been good to have that. Okay, well, we don't have that. So that's that's strike one, okay? Um, and it's not Ruth Bader Ginsburg's fault that she had cancer multiple times. It's not her fault that she couldn't hold out until after the election. You know, she's just a human being and she, you know, she's, she fought as hard as she possibly could, I'm sure, to stay alive and to keep working. But in the final analysis, you know, in 2013, 2014, she had already had cancer, I believe, a couple of times by that point. She had already fought off cancer and she was she was having, you know, health problems. And it wasn't hard to foresee that she would continue to have them. And in 2014 in particular, it wasn't hard to see that the Democrats were probably going to lose the Senate. It was being talked about incessantly on practically any network you can name about how the map was against the Democrats and that they were defending more seats than they than the Republicans were and that they were likely to lose the majority based on this state and that state and the other state. It you didn't need to be Kreskin or even Criswell to <laughs> to tell that it was likely that Mitch McConnell would be majority leader in January of 2015. That was just the way it seemed to be going. So, you know, early on in 2014, it would have been a really good idea if um, not only uh, Ginsburg, but maybe Breyer had said, well, let's, uh, we're going to call it quits. Okay? And uh, we're going to let Obama and the Democratic Senate run by Harry Reid, <laughs> um, which I know sounds sounds a little a little thin, right? A little peaked until you consider that he was replaced by Chuck Schumer, who's much more flaccid even than than Harry Reid. And uh, yeah, that would have been a really good strategic move on the part of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court. That didn't happen. Um, and, you know, all those years of the Democrats in the majority in the Senate observing the filibuster, observing all the norms of the Senate that, that enabled the Republicans to block all kinds of appointments, including many, many judicial appointments over those years, um, Neither of the Supreme Court picks were blocked, but um, there was a potential for that, right? And and I think <laughs> um, certainly <laughs> as far as like legislation and appointments went, 
um, the Democrats in the majority in the Senate from from Obama's election through um, January of 2015 observed the uh, filibuster as uh, a legitimate way of, you know, blocking either legislation or appointments. Uh, they limited it somewhat towards the end of that period with regard to judicial appointments. Um, and there was a lot of screaming and hemming and hawing. And I remember McConnell, you know, saying, this is, you're not going to be in the majority forever and you'll regret this one day, you know, this. Um, and obviously that's, that's ridiculous, right? Uh, because we knew as soon as McConnell took over that he would not observe the same niceties that the Democrats observed during their time in power. So here we are. Here we are. We have three justices on a nine-justice Supreme Court, and it's very likely that Trump will announce a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, within the week, and McConnell will be pushing that that appointment through as quickly and as hard as he can. And I think, personally, that he will have the votes to do it, but I would encourage anyone who lives in a state represented by a Republican senator to get on those senators right now and to nail them and to tell them, particularly if they're up for election this year, um, and to just let your let your voice be heard in any way you can think of. Peacefully, obviously, but any way you can think of. Make sure they're aware of it. I think we really need to go to the mat on this one. I'm not sure what tools we have, right? I'm not sure, you know, what we have at our disposal that will stop this from happening. Because we're in a terrible, we're in a terrible place, right? I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before, and this is the result of losing elections. I know elections are not the only thing. I agree. I agree that elections are not the only thing to be concerned with in politics and in organizing. Obviously not. They may not be the most important thing. Not even close. Organizing, on the ground, working with people, building networks with people, that's far more valuable and important work than elections. But we cannot neglect elections. We cannot this is how we got here. If we had been able to keep some of those Senate seats in 2014, there would be a liberal majority on the court right now. That means legislation moving forward would be preserved that will otherwise be struck down by the conservative Supreme Court. We had the opportunity in 2014, if we had turned out to vote in some of these key states that were taken by the Republicans in the Senate, right? 
I mean, that was 2014, right? All of the people running this year for re-election, they were elected in that year. The ones that were are, are elected, obviously. I mean, Martha McSally, or Sally McMartha, <laughs> which I usually call her. I often call Martha McSally Sally McMartha, just as I call Ron Johnson John Ronson. Um, just for my own entertainment. Um, yeah, Martha McSally was appointed, right? So this is, I think this is a, I don't know, is this a special election for her or maybe the term is up? Um, maybe McCain's term, term would, would be up by now. Um, I know that, uh, Loeffler in, in Georgia, this is a special election for her. So um, what I'm saying doesn't apply to them, but certainly Susan Collins was reelected in 2014, right? Um, Cory Gardner in Colorado was reelected in 2014 or elected in 2014, right? Um, because he's running for reelection this year and it's a six-year term. Um, seriously, those people should have never been in the Senate. Tom Tillis was elected in 2014. He should have never been there. If people had turned out to vote in that election in large enough numbers, motivated by saving the Supreme Court or any other issue you can name, but certainly that's an important enough issue, that would have made a difference. If the Democrats had retained the majority in the Senate in the 2014 elections, that would have made a difference. We would have had a, we would have had a Democratic appointee majority Supreme Court for the first time in decades. And we lost that opportunity because we didn't show up in 2014. We lost another opportunity in 2016 because, again, we didn't show up to vote for someone we couldn't stand. Hillary Clinton. Not a big fan. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I'm not a big fan. But again, who do you think she would have nominated? She might not have been able to get it through the Senate, but eh, I'm not so sure. If she had had enough votes in her own race, it's possible the Senate would have gone Democratic as well because that was pretty close. It would have been a much different conversation at that point. Much different. Um, But that's not where we're at. And where we're at is a product of the failure to show up to vote in these elections. Elections have consequences, and that's where we are. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away is a tragedy, but it's more than a tragedy. It's, it's just fallout from bad decision-making over the course of you know the better part of a decade, but really more than that. Because you can back it up from there. You can back it up to the Bush years. In 2004, 
when not enough people showed up to vote that fucker out of office, even though you were, you know, obviously would have had to vote for somebody like John Kerry who would have been a lackluster president. But still, would he have appointed Chief Justice Roberts? No. Would he have appointed Alito? No. Would we have those people on the court today? No, we would have had a Democratic majority. Or very likely. It's hard to know exactly what would have happened after that point, right? But, you know, because it's hard to prove a counterfactual, but (laughs) if you have a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, you're going to get appointees to the Supreme Court and to the circuit courts and to the district courts that are left of center and not the right-wing thugs that are being appointed by this president on a weekly basis because we don't have the means in the Senate to stop these nominations because they've eliminated the filibuster. They've eliminated personal holds. What do they call them? Blue cards? Those are gone. You can't, if it's a, if, if the nominee is from your state, it used to be you can put a hold on it. Can't do that anymore. That practice has been eliminated because they've been appointing and, and confirming judges to the circuit, to the district courts at a record pace. All of those seats that they held open under Obama because our side was observing the niceties of, you know, allowing them to filibuster. And then from 2015 and through 2015 and 2016, just them not approving anyone because they had a majority, them turning back a bunch of nominees, them not even, not even uh, holding hearings on uh, Obama's Supreme Court nominee. Wouldn't even talk about it. Wouldn't even review the candidate. Wouldn't even meet with him. But again, you can depend on the Republicans to act the way they're going to act because that's in their own perceived self-interest. They will always pursue their self-interest and their constituencies will always show up to vote for them. And if our side doesn't show up, they're going to win. That's the only way they can win. And in so doing, with a 5-4 to four and now potentially a 6-3 to three majority on the Supreme Court, they'll have the ability for the next several decades to knock down any progressive legislation that we might be able to muster together from now on. It's assuming we end up with, you know, if we end up with AOC as president one day, right? Uh, you could pass the most progressive legislation you can imagine, and it's going to get knocked back by this court. It's going to get challenged. It's going to get knocked back because of our failures in past elections. Again, I, I will repeat, electoral politics, not the most important piece in progressive politics, in radical politics. Yes, we need to work on the ground, organize, make a difference in people's lives on a daily basis. That's what we need to do. That's the most important work. And a lot of people are out there doing it every day. And I salute them. I support them. 
And electoral politics is not as important as that, but it's still important. And this is why. This is why, my friends, we have to do this. So here's my recommendation. I'll keep this short. You've heard it before. Here it comes again. There he goes again. Um, just vote. Vote this fall. Whatever else you do, take the few minutes it takes to vote. I am going to vote in person. I live in New York. I know that New York is likely to go for Biden-Harris by um, millions of votes. Very likely that's going to happen. But I'm going to vote anyway. And I'm going to vote in person because I don't trust the absentee ballot system. I'm not trying to throw... I'm not trying to throw that system under the bus. I think vote by mail is fine. I just think that they're going to fuck with it. They're going to claim that it's illegitimate. And that there are going to be legal challenges and probably physical obstructionism. Much like the Brooks Brothers riot, except with AR-15s this time. I don't want to give them that opportunity. I think as many of us as, as can do it should... Put on the mask, put on the gloves, put on a hazmat suit if you have to, but march out to those polls, either in early voting or on election day, and cast a vote to send Trump packing. The only way you can do that is by voting for Biden-Harris. Not an exciting prospect, I understand. But understand, it's an investment in the future. We need to preserve the court's and we need to we need to reverse this tide that's being propelled by these electoral losses we can no longer tolerate this it has to end so i don't know rest in peace notorious um rbg rest in peace i wish to hell you had stepped down in 2013 but rest in peace. <laughs> God, this is frustrating. That's all I got to say about it, my friends. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Um, I've noticed that uh, our listenership has increased a little bit, up, up a tick. Um, if you are listening to this, um, I hope you'll uh, consider um, either commenting or chiming in. You can go to our website at anchor.fm slash strange sound and leave a one-minute voicemail. You can also follow the social media links on that site. And uh, my uh, Twitter handle is at strange sound pod. You can contact me via that. You can contact it me via our uh, Facebook page. You can also go to our main site, big-green.net and uh, click on the podcast tab. That will take you to a link to our our Strange Sound podcast landing page. Um, please uh, spread the word if you would um, tell other people about the show. Um, I encourage you to call in, leave comments, Push back. Tell me why I'm wrong. 
Glad to hear from you one way or the other. In any case, thanks for listening. This has been episode 29, and uh, I look forward to talking to you next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, stay strong. Let's do this. Vote, people, vote. (laughs) Take care.